Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and he's on a mission to make kindness cool, empathy popular, and compassion commonplace. He is an expert in behavioral change. He coaches clients, writes articles, hosts retreats, gives TEDx talks, and makes spoken word poetry videos. So by the way, if you like spoken word poetry, you should definitely go check out Jeremy's, uh, some of his videos, some of his content is absolutely incredible. He definitely, definitely has a gift for spoken word. Uh, He's very active on platforms like Facebook and social media, uh, leading a tribe of more than 40,000 badass humans via his passion projects, uh, passion projects, sorry, called Long Distance Love Bombs. Uh, he also created an online course called Get Shit Done 101, which, uh, covers, which covers tips and tricks scientifically shown to help you start the right rituals, stick to your goals, and radically change your life. And his debut book is coming out on October 30th. So we cover a lot of ground. Um, fun fact about Jeremy that's not in his bio is that he actually has a degree in marine biology. Uh, he also has a PhD in human behavior science. Uh, so he's he's quite a uh, quite a radically um, different guy. Like he's just got so many different avenues and and parts of himself. So we actually start the podcast off by talking about his personal story a little bit. And then we we actually talk a little bit about um, some of his work that he did on the Great Barrier Reef uh, with the Australian government and a, a few different platforms. Um, and we actually talk a little bit about climate change, which is something that I didn't expect, but it was a really, really informative, eye-opening conversation about some of the challenges around climate change, why some people uh, refute it and reject it, uh, and and how we can all sort of support that that initiative. Then the conversation goes into the meat and potatoes uh, in and around rituals, habits. Well, rituals is another word for habits that uh, that Jeremy gets into. Uh, we also talk about the science of beliefs and how belief systems are created. Uh, we then go into things like goals and, and better understanding our own mindset. Uh, and so this, this podcast kind of covers a few different things from productivity to your mindset to creating uh, healthy, sustainable, committed rituals uh, on a daily basis. And Jeremy actually provides some really great resources and tools to help you move into that space. So before I bring him on to the show, I just want to remind all the guys to head on over to the Man Talks community on Facebook. Uh, don't forget to follow or subscribe on our YouTube channel, our Instagram channel. Uh, we've got some fun and exciting things coming up. And uh, don't forget to apply for the Alliance. We are revamping the Alliance. It's an incredible, incredible group of men. Uh, we're going to have the third round coming up with some exciting new stuff. Um, we've made it much more accessible and affordable for everyone. Uh, and so don't forget to su- sign up for the Alliance because that is coming at you very, very soon. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. So without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. Thank you, brother. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, yeah. How is it? Uh, how's it been in Vancouver? I think you're in like a really world class apartment right now. It's it's one of the nicest places I've ever seen, Connor. Yeah. 
<laughs> so for all those listening, that was that was definitely a personal plug, Jer. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy is actually staying at my place in Vancouver as we speak, which is pretty amazing. How, how's the view today? The view is good, man. Uh, gray skies, a la Vancouver. And yeah, life is good, though. Amazing. Amazing. So look, man, we've known each other for a few years. I think we met in Los Angeles like three years ago when we had the first Man Talks, or maybe two and a half years ago when we had the first Man Talks event down there. But, uh, you know, I've followed your work for a long time. We've connected quite a few times and you know, we've got lots of people that run in the same circles. And I'm really excited for this conversation because I know how much value you bring and uh, I'm excited to jam out. So are you ready? I'm pumped, man. Yeah, I've been listening to this podcast since the beginning and uh, it's pretty surreal to be on the other side of it now as a guest. So thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome, man. Awesome. Well, let's, let's just dive in. Let's dive into the question. And uh, the question is, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Um, I actually have been writing a new piece about this and it's kind of a longer story, but it's basically this story of, of how I went from living in my heart to living in my head, essentially. So, so maybe like a month ago, I was wandering around going for a walk in the evening and I ended up walking through this neighborhood where I grew up in. And I was listening to a podcast and eventually I was like, oh man, like this is where I grew up. I should go check out the house where I was raised, right? Um, I hadn't been there in, I don't even know, a decade. And so I, I walked to the house, I was standing in front of it and just sort of staring at it, reminiscing a little bit, feeling nostalgic. And I took my phone out of my pocket to take a photo because I wanted to send it to my sister saying like, oh, look where I am. And right as I'm doing that, the, the front door opens and this old woman is standing on the porch, skeptically staring at me. And, she, and she's like, hey, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm the most suspicious looking human right now. I'm like, I'm like casing the joint for a robbery, right? And um, <laughs> it was a bit awkward. And I was like, oh, no, no, um, I, I used to live here. Um, I was just taking a photo, right? And, um, and so she goes, what's your name? I'm like, oh, Jeremy. And, and she goes, oh, Jeremy, I've known you since you were this big. And she puts her hand down to her knee. Right. And so it turns out that she bought the house from my parents in 1986 when they got divorced. And so then she says to me, do you want to see your handprint? And I was like, well, what handprint? And she's like, come on. And so she walks me around the backyard and she shows me my handprint in the cement where my parents had remodeled the joint. So I'm standing there staring at my six year old's handprint. Uh, and it says my name and like six-year-old writing, Jeremy, right? So it's just a giant head fuck. And so she walks me through the house and gives me a tour. And I'm seeing all these memories and my past, etc. So we say goodbye. I'm standing in the front yard again. And I'm kind of staring at the house. And I, and I see, this is the whole point of the whole damn story, obviously. It has a point, uh, I promise. So I see, I see my dad kneeling in the driveway talking to like six-year-old version of me. And he says to me, hey... Uh, I'm going to be leaving for a while and I need you to be the man of the house. I need you to look after your mom and your sister for me. Right. And, and that I realized in that moment that that was the time that I went from being like a happy, carefree kid to feeling like I need to protect other people. And I, and I started going from my heart into my head and I was overthinking about how my mom and my sister were doing, how they're feeling. I started feeling a little bit anxious. And from that point forward until just a couple of years ago, I was really just all in my head. And, um, and so that made me who I was for decades. 
And just in the last couple of years, I've been trying to unlearn some of that, right? To moving from the head to the heart, prioritizing my own feelings, et cetera. And, uh, and that's where it started, I think. Wow, man. Yeah, that's, that's intense. And I think the interesting thing is that I'm sure that a lot of people have some version of a story like that, you know, where one, of the, one or two of their parents came to them and, and said something that sort of fundamentally shifted their youth, you know, shifted their, their sense of, of innocence and, and responsibility. Because at that age, like you really don't have any responsibility, you know, it's like, make sure you brush your teeth and, and wear clothes, (laughs) you know, it's like, like that's really, yeah, yeah. It's like, that's, that's your, that's your list. That's your checklist for the day, you know? And, uh, so I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, like how did that, how did you just looking back and sort of connecting the dots back backwards, how did that sort of shape your teenage years and into your adult years as you started to form, you know, become more formative as a man? Yeah. So, so, I mean, this only happened to me like a month ago where it really crystallized the moment when everything shifted. I've been doing my own work and digging through this stuff for, for years and years now, but I think how it manifested was, you know, my, my parents had a, a sort of an ugly divorce, as you would say. And so there was tears and there was fights and there was worry and anxiety and all this stuff. And I was always in that place of trying to fix, trying to take care of, you know, at six years old, you have no idea how to manage emotions or feelings or other people. I'm just like doing the best I can. Right. And so basically that's how I was taught as a child to love. So loving for me was fix this, um, avoid pain, don't have the hard conversation. Crying means something is wrong, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so as I go forward into teenage years, I was very closed off. I didn't share a lot of myself with anybody. Started dating people, again, very closed off, very much in my head, um, very analytical, very logical, very scientific and rational. Again, because I was taught from a young child's perspective that, you know, those emotions mean that there is conflict and conflict is bad, right? And so I've been trying to, um, not trying, I have been dealing with this over the last, you know, decade or so trying to unpack all this stuff of Mm. first, first just recognizing, you know, that your past actually fundamentally changes your present because of the way your brain is wired and all the belief systems that you learn as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. So it's been a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine. And did, do you feel like any of your upbringing, some of these scenarios that you're talking about, did, did any of that shape what you decided to do in your future in terms of like your schooling? Because you're quite the, the academic and you're not, you know, it's, it's Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, but it's, you're not normally what I would con- like when I think of like a doctor, <laughs> I don't think, I don't necessarily think of, and th- and that's not a slight in any way, shape, or form. It's it's actually, uh, you know, a really like a, an honor and a, and a positive thing. Um, but I'm curious if some of those past experiences, how they shaped your journey and your trajectory towards the sort of inner discovery and under self understanding that you ended up going on. Yeah, that's a fascinating question, and I think looking backwards, I can understand how uh, my interest in belief systems and self-growth and self-discovery kind of stemmed from that inherent curiosity from childhood of like, what the hell is going on in my life right now? Like, why are these people upset? How do relationships actually work? What is love? You know, all these kind of like philosophical underpinnings, right? But basically when, when I was a kid, I was, I was just really smart and I was really good at memorizing shit and school was easy for me. And it was, I was very good at learning. And, and so I just sort of 
pursued these paths of science. And I was just really fascinated by sort of the foundational element of science being curiosity and intrigue and discovery, right? Trying to figure out new facts, trying to do experiments, trying to understand the world around us. Because when, I don't know, when you look around you just from a day-to-day experience, like there's so many miracles that surround us. And so I kind of got led into science and I basically just chose marine science specifically because I liked going to the beach and going surfing as a kid like with my brothers. And so, yeah, started studying the ocean, started studying coral reefs, and then ended up working on the Great Barrier Reef for many years, worked in the South Pacific, worked in Thailand, sort of bopped all over the place. And then slowly over the years recognized that if we want to save the planet, we need to save ourselves. If we want to change things, we have to change ourselves. So then I got really interested in how people make decisions, why we do the things we do, how our beliefs affect our behaviors, how our attitudes affect our actions from a conservation perspective, but really at the core level, it's all psychology and sociology. So I spent several years doing a PhD thesis all about that kind of stuff, psychology, marketing, communication, sociology. And and now I sort of use that academic um, stuff to do the work that I do now, which is like one-on-one coaching, group coaching. I write online programs, teach workshops. So I'm sort of like taking that academic approach and turning it into something fun and entertaining and, and understandable to the layman, to, to your average Joe, and uh, use a lot of profanity and, and basically try to initiate change from a, from a scientific background in a totally different way. I love it, man. I love it. I, I mean, it's, it's so cool to like see different people's trajectories, you know, what's, what gets them to where they are and, you know, how their, how their past sort of structures their present and their future. And it's really cool to like hear your journey. I, you know, we're going to get into rituals and beliefs and, and, um, you know, productivity and stuff like that. So there's going to be, uh, you know, some really hard hitting stuff here coming up, but, but what I want to actually ask first, which I wasn't really I didn't really know that I wanted to get into this, but but here it is. You know, what was your time like in the great in the in the coral reefs and, and doing that type of work in the what was it the great great barrier great barrier great barrier reef? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I've um, so I spent two and a half years in the South Pacific, living in American Samoa, managing their coral reef program, and I spent probably five or six years living in the northeast of Australia, working for the government and for universities on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, trying to manage. I was in the climate change program, for example, worked for, um, for, for a couple of different research organizations. Overall, it's, it's amazing and incredible uh, and really exciting work. You're at the forefront of marine conservation uh, globally. And the Great Barrier Reef is one of the most majestic, incredible things on earth. At the same mm. time, it's very much uh, a government or university type of job. There's bureaucracy, there's slow processes. And also the nature of the work itself is, is extremely depressing, really. It's, it's, um, the, the prognosis for the Great Barrier Reef and coral reefs overall is, is poor. And it's not expected to get better anytime soon. Long term, you're talking about a significant decline in, in coral reefs all over the world and their associated benefits from tourism to economics to protein production for people. Just to give you some background. So the Great Barrier Reef over the last 30 years has lost about half of the coral on it. And just 
in the last two years or so, they've lost like another 20 to 30% of that half, right? What? And so, yeah, it's, it's gnarly and it's bonkers and scary. And, and the main culprit is climate change. And unfortunately, that is a big ship to turn. And the prognosis for the future is, is not ideal. In saying that, right now, there are many places around the world where there are unbelievably beautiful places to go and see and visit. And they're thriving and they're recovering and they appear to be very resilient. However, sort of long term, looking at 10 to 30 years, it's, it's going to be a dark time for coral reefs unless something drastic changes quick. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, like, uh, you know, uh, I would love to just sort of pause in this area for a few minutes, uh, not to take up too much time, but I think it's something that is a is a conversation worth having, because for, for people like myself that, you know, I haven't, we don't, like, I don't have a degree in marine biology, and so understanding some of these things, I might understand them conceptually, but I'm not really too sure how to actually uh, impact change. And so I, I have a few questions on this vein, but I, I'm curious to get your insight on how and why people can even neglect or or refute climate change because it seems to be such a real thing that so many people have come to terms with that's that it's real you know and it's impacting our environment and you know we can we can see that there's like like trillions of tons of garbage and plastic floating around in the ocean right now as we speak that you can like see it from satellites and so I'm I'm curious from your perspective in terms of like how do people uh, refute that or what have what have you seen in along your journey of of people that that sort of refuse to accept or acknowledge that climate change is real just to understand the other side of the other side of the fence? Yeah, so that's a really good question and it's a really complex question that thousands of people more significant and educated than I are dealing with. But I will give you my personal take on that. Right. So over the last decade or whatever, the, the issue has become polarized politically and it's become, a, it's become like a, a hot topic, I guess, in the media and elsewhere, right? There's a very large vested interest in one side or the other of that argument, thinking specifically about coal, gas, et cetera, right? Resource extraction. The people who argue that climate change is not real and is not happening and is not a big deal usually rely upon cherry-picked facts or they rely upon these um, sort of more emotional arguments. Factually, scientifically, there is no debate. In the scientific community, there is no debate about climate change cause or impact or prognosis for the future. It is settled. And those who claim otherwise are cherry-picking these ideas that it's not a unanimous 100% certainty because that is just the fundamental nature of gravity or of, of, of science. Sorry, I was thinking ahead of myself that gravity is still a theory, right? Like that's just the language mm. expressed. And so the problem with climate change is that it's termed a wicked problem. It's one of these, uh, if you had to design a problem that's the worst problem to deal with collectively, climate change is a really good example of that. And so what I mean by that is it's really, really gigantic. So there's no easy solution. It's taking place largely away from where we are, right? The worst impacts are largely not where we are day to day. And so we can't visually see them. Um, it fluctuates. So part of the year, it's still cold. So people don't think it's a big deal. It's very expensive to change. It requires a global cooperation to, to agree on a path forward. And so all of these things independently are very difficult to deal with. 
And when you put them together into one collective issue, you're basically creating a giant shit show of, um, of tragic proportions. And that's the problem is we keep kicking this, this can down the road for later and we keep pushing it further and further away. And, and the problem is that at some stage and whether that's past or whether that's soon, um, it's going to be too late. And the, the mother nature's wheels will be in proverbial motion. And like, you can't take the genie out of the bottle, all of these wonderful metaphors, but it's going to be really bad. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's my personal take on it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think it gives a, a good amount of clarity and context in a very concise way. Um, you know, for people that, that aren't as educated like myself, who, really look at this situation. And, you know, I, I've always been on the outside looking at it and, and sort of saying, you know, it's it's very obvious the data from what I've looked at is, is fairly obvious in terms of, um, you know, the reality of what we're facing in terms of climate change from, you know, the, the, the North and South Poles just sort of melting away slowly and exponentially, the impact that it's having on, on wildlife all over the world, not just in the poles, and, and that our climates are actually changing. You know, I think that people are, are starting to sometimes feel the reality of that. You know, people that have lived in, in, you know, on the West Coast or on the East Coast for decades, you know, and seen weather patterns, they're, they're very used to a weather pattern. You can hear in elderly people them sort of saying like, yeah, this doesn't feel normal anymore you know, and, and everything seems sort of erratic and you can't, there's not really like a sense of predictability in terms of what's going to happen with the weather because it's just sort of all over the place. And so, uh, not that the weather is ever really super predictable, but, you know, people become acclimatized to, to patterns within their environments, which is very true. Yeah. Um, and so, so, sorry to interrupt, but there's this analogy that they use often, which is climate is the boxer and weather throws the punches. Right. And so what you'll see is more floods, more droughts, more extreme conditions overall, stronger cyclones, loss of coral reefs, um, sea surface temperatures rising and rising and rising. And so individually, one storm might not necessarily prove that climate change exists, but it's all affected because it's all part of the global climate system. Yeah. 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 Really, really, really good. And I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Like it's interesting that that you kind of made the the shift from you know marine biology and, and studying coral reefs and stuff like that to to what you're doing now <clears throat> because there are some major similarities you know like you're on on the one hand like you're you're looking at systems and structures and how things work and ecosystems and ecologies and like how it all sort of fits together and plays together and then you're kind of doing the very similar thing with the human condition you know of understanding how things work together and what impacts what and you know why that's important to know so it's 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 not so surprising to see the change the the shift in in sort of like career trajectory but it's fascinating because i think that those things are like intrinsically tied together you know how the how the world ecosystem works and and understanding the structures there and then how our internal ecosystems work and understanding the structures that are at play there um, just my just my last question on this, and then we'll kind of get into you know rituals and beliefs and stuff like that. But in in terms of in terms of climate change and in terms of the environment, what can average people do? Because I think that that's one of the biggest questions that I often hear is like, you know, it, I think it seems like such a 
and and a huge just sort of gargantuan problem to most people and it's portrayed in that way that it's such a big issue that they often don't know what to do so where do people where do that where's the average person start yeah, so the the standard response to that is vote vote for different people who care about the things that you care about and if climate change is hmm. an issue that's really passionate to you if it's really important to you if you believe that the the long-term health of the planet is significant, then I would encourage you to do some research and take the time to exercise your democratic right and vote for people who care about those things also. Um, on a much smaller scale, you can have the conversations around the topic. You could do things day to day, like put solar panels on your house, drive an electric car, take reusable bags to the store, eat more vegetables and less meat. Things like this day-to-day -day can make an impact, but the scale of the problem requires a solution that's equally grand, right? And so we need an international cooperation. We need um, a widespread transformation in the way that we use and produce energy. And that's only going to come about what's going to come about economically once people see that they can benefit from a renewable economy, and that's slowly happening, or it's going to come across from the, the ground up, which is people exercising their right to vote and make this happen, really. And we're seeing that more and more and more. And it's, and it's really beautiful. It's just going to be an interesting thing to see whether we are doing enough fast enough to prevent the, the most terrible impacts. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you, it almost seems like there's like a behind the scenes global war that seems to be happening, you know, with especially, especially like in the United States right now with, you know, the Republican Party and, and Donald Trump and whatnot really um, sort of hacking away at a lot of these reforms and a lot of these policies that have that have been put in place to actually support, you know, the reversal of climate change and to support some of these environmental changes. And it, and it seems that like, you know, the rest of the world is, is kind of moving in a different direction. You know, you have countries like Germany and France that have vowed to uh, move over to electric electric car sales entirely by something like 2030. And you've got even, you know, China getting on board with massive amounts of investment into uh, solar energy. And they I think the other day they just announced that China announced that they're going to uh, invest something like sixty billion dollars into Africa and into developing the country and and to developing it on on things like renewable energies and solar energies and so mm -hmm. it's quite surprising to see some of those things happening at a at a global level. So, do you see hope in some of those things, or or is it still like a very cautionary tale of like people need to still like very much get out there and do something about it? Yeah, I mean personally for me, like I'm a ferocious. Uh, idealist. And so, so I'm always an optimist that that quote about hope being the last thing to die. Right. And, and so, yeah, there is hope. And, and the Africa stuff is really interesting um, because they're basically seeing like an entire jump between technological advances, right. In the same way that, that some people never had a house phone, they just get a mobile phone for their first phone. They've entirely skipped that bit of technology. They're seeing that in some of the African communities and villages that they're just getting solar for the first time. So they're getting energy for the first time, but it's solar. So they're just skipping power plants entirely and they're just slapping a solar panel on the roof. So in that way, it's really exciting that they're, they're a step ahead in some way and it's definitely spreading and it's opening up new markets, et cetera. It just needs to, it needs to be really quick and it needs to be really big and, uh, and we'll see how that goes.
but yeah, there's, there's, there's always hope until there's not. <laughs> Amazing. I like, I like the, <laughs> I love the ending of that. There's always hope until there's not, <laughs> by the way. So like, We're not dead you know, yet, don't just, you know, like, yeah, don't just exercise the hope, actually get out and do something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it needs action, right? Like hope is not going to save us. Hope is not going to change your life. Hope is not going to get you your dream job or your dream girl. Like you got to actually do some shit and, uh, yeah. and we're doing it. Uh, whether that's, whether that's enough remains to be seen, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people doing some really amazing, incredible work out there and a quick Google search will take you right to them and you can donate money, you can donate time and you can get involved. And, and that's a really beautiful thing. Mm, nice. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, well, speaking of that, let's, uh, let's kind of shift into, uh, you know, some, some of these things, because I, I think that, um, you know, get, getting talking about habits and, and rituals and productivity and, uh, you know, not just exercising hope, because I feel like that, that gets a lot of people stuck. Let's, let's just start what, with actually that, let's just start with what actually gets people stuck. Like, where do people get stuck when they're trying to create change in their life when they're trying to, uh, you know, have proper habits and rituals in their life, where do they usually get hung up from what you've seen? Oh man. Um, so everybody has their own excuses, right. Or their own reasons for not taking action, etc. But I think fundamentally at the heart of most of that stuff is just fear. And what I mean by that is fear of not being good enough, fear of failing, fear of being uncomfortable, fear of living a different life that you don't actually know what that looks like, just fear. And, and that is fear eats dreams. Like fear is a big, bad motherfucker. Um, and I've seen this time and time again, fear disguised as excuses, fear disguised as a, a very rational, very reasonable explanation of why you cannot take action today. And our egos are really, really good at keeping us small and keeping us comfortable and keeping us contained into the life that we currently lead, that's not risky, that's not exciting, right? And so part of the process then is to unravel the individual re reasons and the individual beliefs that we all have about the thing that we want to do and, and exploring why we're not doing those things. So I think it starts, mm -hmm. it starts yeah. with the belief system as the foundation of everything in our life. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I think I think we should probably dive into that next. But I was just gonna I was just gonna ask one one quick question because it seems like you know you're, you're talking about fear and you know some of these things getting in the way, and it seems like our brain is almost wired in a way to predict outcomes and and keep us safe. And so, you know, is it is it sort of like a a, a neurology thing as well? Like, is you know, does our brain sometimes get in the way of us actually creating? Uh, substantial change simply because it's it's designed to try and keep us safe like is it is it something that we're battling our our sort of um wiring to begin with totally yeah like like the reason that we're sitting here talking right now is because for millions of years when our ancestors got scared and ran away from the bear or the dark cave or whatever like that was a good call like that was a really good decision to be scared and live to fight another day so they can make more babies. And then for millions of years, that's worked really well. And now, though, the problem arises is that we have this evolutionary, um, sophisticated thing in our brain that is really good at detecting fear and really good at processing it. And that's the hardwired system in all of us, right? 
except we live lives where I can push a button and and have hot, clean water pour out of a hole in the wall. And I have a refrigerator filled with food. And uh, it has never been a more peaceful, safe time to be alive in the history of the world, right? And so we don't really necessarily have lions and tigers and bears and shit trying to kill us every day. But we still have the same components in our brain that are hardwired to look for these things. And so we find it in different places. And we find it in worrying about our neighbors and worrying about money and worrying about how we look and et cetera, et cetera. And so, so basically, yeah, it is a battle between feeling the fear and caving to it and, and not taking action versus fearing, feeling the fear and doing it anyway, essentially. And so I, I, have mm. this, I have this thing that I wrote where I, that, I, um, that I think is really good advice that I've used in a lot of people is, is like, we're not brave because we take action. We, oh, sorry, we, we don't take action because we're brave. We are brave because we take action, right? And so the bravery sort of becomes a byproduct of the action. Like you don't have to, yeah. you don't have to be ready to act. You just have to act. Like just do the damn. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like a, it's almost like a bypassing of instincts, right? Because our instincts are trying, like, trying to like get us to run or, or you know, fight, flight, or freeze, like keep us safe in some capacity. And we almost have to move through those initial instincts into a deeper level. So, but let's talk a little bit about belief systems and and how they're actually initially created, because I think that's something that oftentimes gets overlooked. So, how are our belief systems, just in a in a in a layman way, in a, in a basic way, how are those belief systems actually created in the first place? Well, I think from the beginning, like we're taught what to believe, like we learn what to believe as kids and as adolescents, as we move through into teenage years, we learn what we believe, right? And we don't really question our beliefs until, <laughs> until we get to a place in adulthood where we start to get curious or we start to get depressed or something like this, right? And so we learn from our families, from our friends, from our school systems, from our culture and society. We learn, you know, how to, how to thrive in the world around us. We learn conformity. We learn peer pressure. We learn all of the things about ourselves. And so then the process, I, I think, uh, becomes unlearning all of the things that you've been taught rather than learning a bunch of new shit. I think that can be really powerful transformation, right? And you've probably seen this in the work that you do with coaching and relationship stuff. It's like, First, you need to identify what's going on underneath the surface and then sort of tease out why you believe those things and how your beliefs are manifesting as actions or decisions or feelings or fears, right? And so it's sort of, sort of in my opinion, I think it's just a foundational thing upon which all of the other stuff in our life manifests, like emotions, feelings, decisions, actions, goals, dreams, ambitions. It's all rooted in, in a belief system. Mm. So the first, so the first step is is starting to understand our conditioning and what our beliefs actually are. Yeah, yeah, and like, and getting curious, right? So, so why do I believe the things I do, or, or like, even at a basic level, like, what do I believe to be true about myself and my life? And then from there, it gets really exciting. So, for instance, David Bear, I think you've had on the podcast, is a really killer speaker, mm-hmm. and he has this idea or this phrase: beliefs are choices. And so once you recognize that beliefs are choices, you become very empowered to then explore what you currently believe and take action on what you choose to believe. Like what, 
what beliefs would be the most valuable, the most beneficial, the most impactful for you to choose now so that you can become the person that you long to be, so that you can create the life that you truly want. And it all starts from beliefs. If, if you believe you're not good enough, you're probably not going to be a very successful entrepreneur. If you believe that you don't have what it takes, if you believe that, that uh, entrepreneurship is hard and a struggle and terrible and a grind and all of this, then your life is probably going to reflect those beliefs in some conscious or subconscious way. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so we need to sort of identify our, our, our sort of inner and core beliefs, see where they've came from and then start to realize how those beliefs are having an impact on our life and then start to shift into the space of what beliefs we want to actually acquire or start to choose, as you're saying, um, so that we can, so that we can actually move forward and, and produce different results in our life. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, I think so. Or just a reinterpretation of our current beliefs, right? So we might believe, for example, that that fear is bad or that fear is is, uh, is terrible for relationships, right? And while there are examples where that is perhaps true, there are also other examples where fear is a really wonderful, beautiful thing that is a core part of feeling alive. Um, and the topic I mentioned earlier about being fearful of the bear hiding in the cave, like fear is trying to keep you alive. And that's amazing. And we can choose to be really grateful for fear of like, hey, fear, I hear you. I appreciate you wanting to keep me safe. But like, I'm going to start this business anyway. Like, hey, fear, like, I know that you're telling me that I'm that I'm not good enough to talk to that woman at the gym. And I appreciate you trying to keep me safe and keeping my ego intact. But like, I'm going to go and ask for her phone number anyway. Right. And so it's a way to like pause and reinterpret the underlying stuff that is leading to the decisions. Because so often we just think quickly. This um, Thinking Fast and Slow is a really powerful book by, by Daniel Kahneman. He's talking about how we have two brains in our, in our head and they're kind of battling with each other. We do, there's so much to process that, we, that we're designed and we've evolved in such a way that we instinctively just spit out actions. And then there's the second slower brain where we can sort of pause for a moment, really process what's happening, really get curious as to why this is happening and what the best course of action will be. And then we can take action from there. And so it becomes a practice to try to understand why you're doing and thinking and being the way that you are versus really actually giving it some, some thought and deciding from that place. Mm. Nice. Okay, great. And, you know, I, th I think one of the one of the reasons that you've talked about before, and uh, you know, you've got this great, <laughs> this great little PDF that's get shit done 101. And, you know, you, you talk about why uh, the you know, why is so important. And I kind of want to dig into that, because, you know, Simon Sinek, you know, had the talk start with why and, and he really makes a case uh, about, you know, the importance of understanding that. But from your perspective, how do we start to uncover our own sense of why and what is the power of it? Whew, that's such a good question. Uh, <laughs> just a small just, one. Just a light question. Um, the meaning of life, essentially. So your why is so powerful because to me, the, the why is like why you get out of bed in the morning. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you here? Like, what's the whole damn point? And so that kind of guides everything. If you're not focused on on your true why, then everything else can kind of feel superfluous 
or boring or not aligned or whatever kind of language you want to use. And then when you are on track, when you are like living your day in a place where you're like doing the thing that you really believe you're supposed to be doing, you're sharing your gifts with the world, you're having a positive impact on humanity, you're giving, you're sharing, you're becoming and evolving, like that is powerful, powerful medicine, right? And so I think ways to explore that, if you aren't really clear on that, is to just ask yourself a variety of questions. Things like, um, like what do I love doing? What am I best at? Um, what's the one thing in the world that I wish was different? What is something that I know that I wish everybody knew? And and there and Simon Sinek, of course, is is basically has a whole enterprise around this. And Liz Gilbert has a really good talk where she advises people to just be a hummingbird. And some people just need to go from flower to flower to flower and just try a bunch of shit before they realize deep down what their why is. Uh, it's a really good talk. Another way is to think of of like turning pa- uh, pain into purpose, turning pain into passion. And so oftentimes people who are, who are deeply hurt or, or really disagree with something in the world, they use that as fuel to try to inspire change that they want to see in the planet. And so that can be your why. Like if something really drives you absolutely bonkers and you want it to be different, then that's a, that's a decent indication of, of what you could be spending your time on. Right. And then just one final thing to add to that. I think oftentimes people know deep down what their why is and they tell themselves they don't because they're scared to admit it or they're scared that other people will think that it's silly or they're scared to really dive in and go all in on this idea because they might fail. They might um, they might believe that's not good enough, etc. And so there's a chance that if you're listening and you think, oh, I don't know what my why is, like you, you really might, you know, if you really sat and got still and gave yourself some space, you really might, you really might know. Yeah, I, I like that. And there's, you know, it's, um, there's a great quote by Jim Carrey, actually, he gave a commencement speech and he said, your need for validation can make you invisible in this world. Mm-hmm. And I think that not only can it make us invisible, but I think that sometimes our need for validation can actually um, keep us blind to our purpose, to our why in life, because we're so worried about what other people might think, you know, if we took the leap, if we, you know, did the program, if we actually started to take steps towards, you know, what we know is true for us and what we know is true for uh, what our purpose is in life. And nobody wants to feel judged. You know, nobody wants to feel taken down or, or, we're un, you know not validated or, or called stupid or crazy or, or whatever it is, but the the problem is is that a lot of people that that have success in life they face that criticism. You know, it's almost a part of breaking out of the norms. So you know, uh, along that vein, you you talk quite a lot about rituals, and I'm a little curious to get your like is there a difference first off is there a difference between rituals and habits well yes and it's let me explain so so when i first started writing this program i was using the word habits and uh and i showed uh this girl you know my my pdf document and she's like no 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 habits is too rough use rituals girls like rituals they don't like habits so that to me is the only difference i just changed it from habits to rituals and like it sounds softer but like on a, on a serious note, I'm not sure. I, I see both as just 
something that you that you do day to day that is consciously cultivated that that helps your your life be a certain way whether that's good or bad mm. okay yeah cool because i i mean i actually like the word a little bit better because you know i think about habits i've always tried to reject habits in some way it's like i, I don't want to have habits you know i don't want to have like a because I, I think because on some level i've come to find that a lot of people associate habits with something that's negative you know smoking habits drinking habits biting your nail it's a habit yeah. And and so, you know, there's there's sort of this stigma. unconscious tie. Yeah, there's a stigma. Exactly. Exactly. So so how do we start to create healthy, continual, committed rituals in our life? Where do we start to build the foundation of that? So so I would argue, like, why are you doing this? So again, back to the why of like, and just to build on what you said a moment ago of like, you could have the, the world's best rituals that you do every day. And you're efficient and effective and productive and like nobody does them better than you. But if you're doing them for a reason that doesn't align with your big purpose or your big why, like you can hate your life. So you can be very efficient and effective and rich and powerful, etc. But you can also at the same time be miserable, right? And I think it's an important distinction. So, so asking yourself like, why am I doing this? So, so that's a, a core starting point. And then I love the idea of just starting as small as possible. So, for example, if, you, if your big why, for example, is to write your autobiography, you want to write your book. And that can be a goal also, which we can talk about in a minute. I, I don't like goals. But say you want, to, you want to write a book. Then the ritual becomes writing every day. So if you write every day, of course you're going to write a book. That's just what people do who write every day, right? So the ritual might be write 200 shitty words a day every morning while I drink my cup of coffee, whatever. And so by writing 200 shitty words, it lowers the expectation. It takes the pressure off. You don't have to write a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. You just need to get your words down on paper. And the, the process of starting small, the process of starting shitty leads you to create that ritual through time, to create that habit, whatever you want to call it. And then from there, you can build. And so I, I believe it's much more important to start the ritual than it is to do the ritual really well, at least at first. Yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. I mean, I had um, former NASA engineer on the podcast recently, and he did this great TED Talk talking about the Mario effect. And it was basically about you know using failure to learn faster. And it, it, was, it was quite quite interesting how he sort of like tied it all together and and like really allowed people to understand that they that they need to fail in some of these moments and that they actually using that knowing that knowing that you're not going to know exactly how to play the game perfectly the first time you know nobody gets on a bicycle the first time and it's just like ah, oh, i got this you know <laughs> I'm on the tour de I'm four years old right Right, right, exactly. Like that shit never happens. But when it comes to when it comes to expectations on ourselves as adults, we often we oftentimes take that same approach. It's like, oh, writing. I need to be, you know, I need to be perfect the first time. Or as a photographer, like I need to be perfect the first time and you know win all these awards. And it's like, no, you just actually need to start where you are and allow your failures and your dedication to it to teach you how to become more proficient because that's actually how we learn. And anything outside of that is, you know, it's just ignoring reality. Uh, I'm, 
I actually want to circle back around to what you said before about not liking goals. Yeah. What? So, hang on. <laughs> Can I add to that though? So, so yes, it's yes. a really good example of, of a belief system at play. So you can choose to believe that failure is bad and terrible and something to avoid at all costs, or you can choose to believe that failure is merely a process by which you gather information, facts, and data to improve the way that you do things the next time, right? And so, mm -hmm. so the thing is the same, like things are not bad or good, things just are, right? And we assign the context. And so choosing to see failure as a scientist does really, which is like a grand part of a grand experiment to learn and to grow and to enhance the body of knowledge that we have about something is a really powerful way to look at things, right? And so when you mm -hmm. see your life as an experiment, you're just like, oh, I failed at that. Awesome. I know more about how to do that next time. Like, oh man, that, that relationship sucked. Well, cool. Well, the next one will be better because I went through that or, you know, that business went bankrupt. Awesome. Like I've learned how to navigate bankruptcy so that I won't fear it next time as much. Right. So just, just to add to that, I think that's a really powerful example of, of how you can choose to reinterpret something in your life to apply a context that is the most beneficial short and long term. Awesome. Yeah. I really, I really like that. I like that, um, that approach and that perspective. So yeah. So let's circle back around to goals because yeah. I'm sure that, that a lot of people heard that and were like, what? Yeah. Like you got to have goals and that's counterintuitive. And so, so let's, let's touch on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. 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 Not a fan. So I, uh, well, I, sh I should circle back on that. I think goals are powerful and motivating and can be really helpful and productive to provide vision and clarity and all of that good stuff. And having worked in government and for universities, we do all kinds of forward planning with SMART goals, which you're probably familiar with. It's like specific, mm -hmm. measurable, achievable, result-oriented, and time-bound, right? So these are, really, these are really good things to keep in the back of your mind. My problem with goals is that goals will not fundamentally accomplish themselves. And so this goes back to this idea of hope versus action as well. Like, I want to lose 100 pounds by uh, December 15th, 2020, right? So it can be specific, measurable, all that stuff. Great goal, beautiful goal. Guess what? Like that goal is not going to do shit for you independently, right? So a, perhaps a ritual is what I encourage people to focus on or a habit. If you focus on a ritual of becoming somebody who works out five days a week, right? Become somebody who's a runner. If you become a runner, you're probably going to lose 100 pounds by December 17th or whatever it was. And so I'm a, much, I'm a much greater proponent of this idea of rituals. And if you choose the right rituals, if you choose the right version of yourself to become, then the goal is kind of become an inevitable byproduct of being that kind of person. And it's kind of a counterintuitive way to think of it. So goals are good. You can set goals of like, oh, by the end of the week, I'm going to write this paper. Or I'm going to publish this book or, or whatever. I'm going to have that hard talk. Great. Check the boxes, do the to-do list, everything. However, I think occasionally we get too distracted with creating the goals and we lose sight of the fact that we need to actually do the right work in the right way to get to the goal. And so I mm. take this, this tact of like focusing more on, on the action. And I think having a ritual focused um, system helps encourage that. 
Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that because I think, you know, a lot of the people that, I, that I've seen that struggle with goals, struggle to achieve goals consistently are usually of the mindset of like, okay, I've set this goal, but like now how do I actually go about achieving that? And a lot of the times, you know, if it's like a weight loss goal or if it's a financial goal, um, they might not actually have like the rituals or the, uh, you know, the, the structure that's actually in place that's going to help them actually achieve that. So they set this big goal of like, oh, I want to make a million dollars next year. I want to lose, you know, 50 pounds next year, like whatever it is. But then there's, there's not actually like an infrastructure to help them achieve that. So then it becomes then it becomes like this crippling exercise where it's like, oh, well, I, I don't know how to do this. And like, it's never going to happen. And then, it, you know, all of this like negativity and doubt starts to set in and it sets them back. And so, yeah, um, you know, for for the people that are in that space that are wanting to create these rituals that are wanting to, you know, succeed in some of these areas, you know, whether it's goal oriented or not. How do they start to address and, and overcome, you know, negative attitudes, negative thoughts? Um, action. Really, so I think taking action, uh, small daily actions done with ferocious determination, will change your fucking life. And it will do that because it will change the way that you look at yourself in the mirror, and it will shift your identity. You will become somebody new. You'll become somebody different. You will become somebody who slowly starts to see themselves in a different light, and the way that you believe yourself to be will shift. And it starts with action. The action leads to the motivation. The motivation drives further action, greater action, more action. So it's kind of like this cycle. And I think that to me is the crux of, of behavior change really is, is what you intend to do medium to long term is shift the way that you see yourself. Because when you do that, everything changes. Like when, when you are able to see yourself as somebody who works out, or somebody that, that is a crossfitter or somebody that is a runner or is a yoga practitioner or whatever. Those people, they, they identify themselves as something that they did not use to identify themselves with, right? And we do this consciously and subconsciously. We might identify ourselves with someone. Um, I, I just was walking down the sidewalk earlier and I heard this woman go, oh, I am not a morning person. And I'm like, well, that's a choice, isn't it? Like, that's a belief about yourself. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, no, I don't do yoga. Oh, I don't do hard things. Oh, I don't try new things. These are all beliefs, conscious or not, that, that shift how we view the world around us. And that will then influence the actions that we take, right? And just building on what you said a minute ago, is like people start these goals and then they, they don't have the structures or the framework or the system in place to go after them. That is it's absolutely true. And if you own a gym, you love New Year's resolutions for exactly that reason. Because you get shitloads of people, they get really motivated, and they sign up for their year-long pass, and they go for a week or two or three, and then they don't appear for the whole rest of the year, and, and you get paid regardless, right? And so this yeah. is why goals can be a very dangerous thing, because when we set the goal, we feel really great, and we're inspired, and we're passionate. And then when we don't achieve the goal... Most of us, and this is a totally normal thing to do, I do this often as well, is, is like we get down on ourselves and we call ourselves names and we say, I'm a failure. I can never do that. And it's kind of this reinforcing cycle by which we see ourselves and the limiting beliefs continue to manifest in that way because we look for evidence to prove ourselves right. Like we find what we seek in a weird way, right? Right. And so we'll continue to 
to try and fail and try and fail because that's just how we see ourselves. And so to get around all of that is to like get a system in place, get a structure in place, create the environment that you need to continually, slowly build day to day to day, take action, get your shit done, right? And so the, I'm ranting right now because I'm really passionate about this. But one, <laughs> one, one example that I use with people is like, if your goal is to like feel less stress in your life or like to start feeling calm and peaceful, right? And you want to meditate. So I'm like, okay, meditate for one minute today. And then tomorrow do two minutes and like start as small as possible, right? And it does not sound like much, but at the end of a year, you'll be meditating for six hours a day. You'll be a fucking monk. You'll be Zen as fuck because you've taken the smallest action possible and you've, and you've regularly, routinely done it day after day after day. And you see big results. We compound like a 1% improvement in ourselves day to day compounds as like a 38 times improvement after a year. And, and so we, we can focus on the day to day, day to day, day to day, and over time we'll see the changes. So that's my long rambling rant about, about that. No, I think that's, I think that's good, man. I think that's good because I think, you know, one of the things that I, that I've, you know, starting, start small and, and smart day, start daily, I think is not necessarily like a new thing, but most people are like, oh yeah, start small. Like what, what does it actually mean? How do I actually do that? And like, is it actually going to like yield results? And, you know, I, I like to equate it to, to compounding interest, you know, day after day, if you're putting in the work, if you're putting in the effort, it's going to to produce compounding interest day after day. You're going to see those results start to pile up. And, you know, I think about, I was going to ask you, like, how do you start small? But I wanted to give actually a personal example really quick, which is way back in the day when I started meditating, I really struggled. Like I, my brain was all over the place. I couldn't sit and focus for more than like 60 seconds. I hated it. It was driving me nuts. And I knew that it would be good for me, but I just couldn't start. And so what I committed to was meditating for five minutes a day, every day. And I didn't say like, I'm going to do this for 30 days. I'm going to do this for 60 days or 14. I was like, okay, I'm just going to start doing this five minutes a day. I commit to that and see what happens. And the first couple of days were okay. And then I started to fall off. And so what I started to do was I, I necessitated that I had to do it sometime in the day, not in the morning, not at night, just I had to do it sometime during the day. And I set multiple reminders on my phone. And then I put a little note. I wrote a note, meditate today. And I would put that note on my pillow so that if I hadn't meditated by the time I went to bed, then it was right there and I would sit for five minutes. And so it, was, it became this like mandatory thing. And so I set up the, the sort of system and the structure so that that would become possible, that one little thing. And then that started to stick with me. And I just started meditating all the time. And then my meditations got longer and deeper and I really cultivated that practice all because I started in that very small, um, methodical way and overcame all of like the limiting beliefs and all the, you know, smack talk that was going on in my brain about how I couldn't do it. So um, I just wanted to offer that up because I felt like it was a very real personal example of, of how I actually started meditating, which I thought would be real for people that are out there about to start small in some area. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. And I think for me, what I'm hearing, the main takeaway of that is like you created the environment around you that made it as likely as possible for you to do that thing, right? You left mm -hmm. notes, you put reminders in your phone, you committed to starting as small as possible. And like you basically gave yourself the best chance of success that you could, right? 
And I think that's a really strategic way to approach things, right? And, and there's numerous ways that you can do that. And like for meditation, there's this idea of um, like RPM, which is like rise, pee, meditate. So it's like you do it the first thing in the morning uh, above all other things. And so you limit the chance of you getting distracted or finding an excuse. And, and then like that becomes the habit. Um, but setting in reminders in your phone is an excellent idea. There's other ways to foster accountability, like, um, like getting a meditation partner, joining a meditation group, getting an app, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you basically are looking for ways to, to hold yourself accountable to be the person that you want to be, right? Awesome. Awesome. Man. And we're, we're pretty much strapped for time. So I just want to ask one last question because this has come up a, f- a few times, uh, just sp- sprinkled throughout the conversation, I think. But how important is your environment when it comes to building these rituals and, and being more productive? Because I think at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is a sense of productivity, is a sense of accomplishment, is a sense of success that all of these rituals will lead towards, that all of these beliefs and uh, and, and core values will lead towards. So how important is environment? How does that fit into this? Yeah, huge, 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 huge. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, the, the things that are going on around us really influence the things that are going on inside of us. And marketers know this for a fact because they've focus grouped which color of red gives us a 12% greater chance of buying their product or whatever, right? And so there's all these little things that are going on. And essentially, we want to create a space for ourselves that gives us the best chance to do the things that we want to do, right? And so if that means you have noise-canceling headphones on to minimize distractions, or you light some incense, or put on your favorite song, or wear your favorite sweatpants, or I don't know, any number of things, find a great pillow that you love, find a room that you love working in, create a space in your house that is productive. Um, you're much more inclined to do the things that you want to do if your environment is designed or promoting, um, promoting you to do that. And so we can get really intentional with that. And I think it's a huge, huge deal. And I think it's also a reason, um, why groups are so powerful, like going to a workout group, forming community, et cetera, those kind of systems create an environment that encourage you and keep you accountable, Right. And so it's just a subtle way to nudge you forward to, to continue doing the things you want to do. Yeah. So I think those are the two components is like what's going on inside, what's going on inside of your head, what's going on outside of you in your environment. And if you can master both of those, then you're, then you're well on your way to doing great things. Amazing. Amazing, brother. Well, listen, this has been an absolute treat and honor. And we, you know, we dove into a, uh, into a lot today. <laughs> some, some topics that I didn't even think that we would cover, but, but there it was. We ended up talking about climate change before changing your habits and rituals and beliefs. Um, but uh, listen, yeah, as, as, as I tend to do, uh, let curiosity lead. That's, that's my motto. Um, but yeah, man, listen, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? So my, my, my tagline, my brand is long and distance love bombs. So you can find me online at that on Instagram, long distance love bombs, Facebook, just that's the easiest way. Long distance love bombs.com. Yeah. And just for those of you that are, that are listening and want to go check out Jeremy, he's also an incredible, incredible spoken word poet and does, has done some amazing things. So definitely go check him out. Uh, cause he's got some great work out there. So Jer, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Pleasure, brother. Thank you so much and uh, keep kicking ass, man.
Thank you, sir. And for everybody else that's out there listening, uh, don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast episode with just one person or 10, whichever one uh, works for you. But man it forward. Share with a few people that would find it interesting. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review whatever platform you're on, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes. Uh, and until next week, uh, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.